So over the last two weeks, Pastor Eric and Ed walked us through the section of the Statement of Faith that focused on the person of Christ. Tonight, we're going to start a new section tonight and, and next week. We're going to look at the, the saving work of Christ. And that looks at the significance of Christ's work in regards to our salvation. The saving work of Christ is viewed from perspectives called states or e-states. And these states describe his state of being or role in which he's acting at various times throughout the entirety of his existence. So tonight, we're going to look specifically at his state of humiliation in his saving work. And if you're using the, uh, the booklets, it's going to be on page 31. Now, you may not be acquainted with the perspective of Jesus' state of humiliation, but with God's help, when we're done tonight, you will. Or if you are familiar with it, maybe you'll know it a little bit more. But what I want to talk about now, just for a second, is what's the significance of it? Why is it important for us to acquire this knowledge? How does it impact our walk with the Lord? By God's grace, if I communicate this effectively it should bring us to a heightened level of, of, of faithfulness from a deepened level of, of gratitude. Now, we can all hear the same message and all walk away with something completely different. So I don't want to be presumptuous in saying God's going to do this in your heart. But I think as we work through this, you'll see that those, when we see the, the, the cost that Jesus paid for this, it should bring us to greater levels of faithfulness and deeper levels of, of gratitude. Because we're probably so familiar, most of us, with John 3.16, the verse John 3.16, that we could probably do it after waking up out of a dead sleep. Most of us could probably do it in our sleep. But maybe we're so familiar with it that it kind of loses some significance. Maybe we don't really hash out exactly what's entailed in that. So understanding the, the humiliation of Christ explains what was entailed in God giving us his only son. What did the cost of not, for, for us not to perish and have eternal life look like? It's impossible for us to comprehend that anyway, because the full weight of what Jesus endured for us is beyond comprehension. However, we're not going to get it at all if we don't keep in mind that we're talking about God, the creator of all that it, there is, stepping into human form, living every experience that we experienced, and then going to the cross to take on God's wrath that was due us. To understand this the best that we can, we need to keep in mind during this whole study, as we're talking about this tonight, that we're talking about Jesus, the one that created this very earth, that when he came back in human form, he had to learn how to walk on. He created how our bodies work, but as an infant, he needed to be fed when he was hungry and changed when his diaper was full. Out of love, he came down to live among the people he created, people who would go on to hate him and betray him, slander him, spit on him, beat him, and ultimately kill him. And the thing is, he didn't have to do this. Remember in Matthew 26, when the soldiers came to arrest him, and Peter took out his sword and he cut the soldier's ear off? Jesus said in verse 53, put your sword away. Do you think I can't call my father? And he would immediately send me 12 legions of angels? So Jesus is letting everybody know, make no mistake about this. I'm in charge right now. I've got this under control. Now, had Jesus not endured the cross, we would not be saved because there were no other options. But just like Adam had the ability to go against God's word, Jesus could have done it too. But Jesus remained faithful to God and took all the punishment for us. 
Jesus didn't cut any corners or take advantage of his deity while he was in earthly form. He felt the exact physical pain and, and, and mental anguish and emotional stress that we feel. He took it all on for us. So our knowledge of Jesus' state of humiliation gives us a deeper perspective of the price paid for our salvation, which should deepen our thankfulness for what he did for us, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, strengthen our faithfulness to live our lives in his, in his glory. So keep that in mind as we're going through this. All right, first sentence. In the entirety of his life and death, common information on most headstones is the date that the person was born, the date that the person died, and that dash in between. And I've heard it said that that dash in between represents that person's all, full life experience. So the, the entirety of that person's in, in, um, existence is birth, that dash in between, and the day that the person died. So likewise, the entirety of Jesus' life means that Jesus' state of humiliation started the moment he began to experience what all humans experience, then that dash in between, all the way to the death on the cross. However, though Jesus does have a birth date, his existence started way before that. So he's eternal. So generally, he has no start date or a beginning. So to start a discussion about Jesus' state of humiliation, we need to start his, at his state before his incarnation. And that state is called the state of pre-incarnation or pre-existence. And we find that in John 1, 1 to 2, which reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So the, the word beginning in this context means forever was. So later on in verse 14 of the same chapter, John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. So John affirms that the Son, the second person in the Trinity, existed before he was conceived and born. So also John's statement that we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, testifies that although born as a human, the Son maintained his eternal divine nature. Though he was a person, he never stopped being God. So Jesus' state of humiliation is comprised of two things happening at the same time. One is his human experiences, meaning his, his endurance of the things on earth that all of mankind experiences. And two, his divine experiences, evidence that he was indeed God while in human form. So we're going to look at Jesus' state of humiliation from the standpoint of both of those concepts, his, his human experiences and also ways in which he, he demonstrated his deity in four areas, his inception, his birth, his ministry, and his death. And you're probably thinking, man, that's a lot of material for the first eight words of the first sentence. How long are we going to be here tonight? I'm going to move very efficiently through the rest of it. Um, we're, we're going to get done on time. So let's go ahead and get started. Jesus' humiliation and his inception. Jesus' humiliation began the moment he began to experience what all of us experienced. So when was that moment? And I believe we find that in Matthew 1:18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his, mother Mary, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
So the moment the Holy Spirit put Jesus inside of Mary's body is when his humiliation began. So the Son of God in human form began as a mere embryo. Can you think of a time or a stage in human development when a human body is more, more vulnerable than an embryo? I mean, think about it. When a baby is born, under normal circumstances, the child can cry, can make noise, can whine, can do something to alert that there may be something is wrong. He has a physical body, so we can visually detect maybe that something's wrong. Well, embryos can't make any noise. We can't see them unless we're using high-tech equipment. They are completely helpless. So Jesus humbled himself to the development process, needing to be formed in the womb, just like we did. So it's demonstration of his deity during his inception is in two forms. One, it was demonstrated at this stage by the truth that his incarnation did not come through the seed of a man, but through the Holy Spirit. And the other one is in the sense that as the creator and sustainer of the stages of the development of, of the human process, he essentially developed himself. We didn't do that. Moving on. Jesus' humiliation in his birth. So now, Jesus entered the world in the lowliest of circumstances. He was born to a peasant woman in controversial and scandalous circumstances in a barn, surrounded by farm animals, laying in a feeding trowel. Doesn't get much humbler than that. But yet he was glorified. Demonstrations of his deity is apparent in just the Christmas story. The angel proclaiming his birth. The company of the heavenly host appearing to the shepherds announcing his birth. The wise men seeking and traveling to visit him. Jesus' humiliation throughout his ministry. The first act of his humiliation was his submission to the baptism. Now, if there was one person on the planet besides Jesus that knew the significance of the baptism, it was John the Baptist. And John the Baptist knew that this was a rite, an R-I-T-E, that God ordained for sinners. So John the Baptist certainly knew if there was anybody on the planet that didn't fall under that category, it was Jesus Christ. That's why he said in John 3.14, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? And Jesus replied in verse 15, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus submitted to the baptism to become one with the people that he came to save. He did this to meet the obligation of every aspect of the law. He did it to assume our debt. He also humbled himself to the normal physical and emotional things that we experience. We have biblical evidence that Jesus was hungry, he experienced weariness, happiness, sorrow, compassion and concern, anger, although his anger was a righteous anger, our anger is just a, ah, mad. Um, he experienced pain and abandonment. Now, it's not written, but knowing that he was human and in light of the other experiences, it's safe to assume that he probably caught a cold every once in a while. We know he did a lot of walking, so I bet you his feet hurt from time to time. Jesus was 100% human in every way. Demonstration of his deity during his ministry. I just read um, John 1, 14, where it says that Jesus was always God. Now, 
This truth goes against the misconception that a lot of people, including a lot of churches, have that Jesus stopped being God temporarily while he was on earth. We have biblical proof that that's not the case at all. The first proof is Jesus said so himself. There's 15 verses in the Bible where Jesus either directly identified himself as God or intimated that he was God by saying something that only God could rightly say. So the conversation that Jesus had with the Jews in John 8, 51, 58 is a, is a really good example of Jesus identifying himself as God. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews lost their mind. So what was the, why were they in such an uproar? Because not only did Jesus identify himself as the son of God, he went further in identifying who he was. The Jews were very aware that in Exodus 3.14, when Moses asked God what his name was, what did God say his name was? I am. So when Jesus said before Abraham, I am, the Jews immediately made the connection. Jesus was telling them that he was indeed God. And they flat out let Jesus know that this is why they're mad. Because in verse 31, they say, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. They understood what he was saying. They didn't accept it. And it didn't sit well with them at all. A sample of the many verses where Jesus said he could do what only God could do is John 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So the first evidence that Jesus was still God while he was on earth is the fact that he told us. The second proof that he was still God is his command over nature while in human form. This is... One of the things that boggles my mind the most, it's so amazing and awesome, but just hard to understand, and is related to the truth that the son was always God, even in human form. Um, I've got two kids, and when they were babies, I actually loved changing their diapers. So my wife and I would, would compete who's faster, who's better, and usually she was, but I didn't mind, you know, being in the race. And, um, but my kids are pretty smart, but never at one time did they change their own diaper when they were infants? Did anybody have that experience? No, no. I don't think anybody experienced an infant changing a diaper. Lori, are you saying you did? No, I said it's a problem that they get. Oh, yeah, that would be, yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, like, every child born, Jesus needed to be cleaned up several times a day. So, while Jesus was laying there, and Mary is cleaning his bottom, he's holding all of creation together. He's holding Mary's very being together and giving her the power to change his diaper. 
We can even go before that. As soon as the Holy Spirit put Jesus into Mary's body, he was still doing what he had always been doing, being God. That's amazing. He never stopped being God. And as God, he was able to turn water into wine, walk on water, calm storms, command demons, heal the sick, and raise the dead. He ruled over these things each second that he was in human form. We also see evidence of his deity during his ministry in the form of his omniscience, his knowledge of everything. We read in the Bible times when Jesus knew people's thoughts. In Mark 2, 8, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that the scribes thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? He knew who, who true believers were and who weren't. In John 6, 64, But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. From, now, when it says from the beginning, he doesn't mean from the beginning of that conversation. He means before time. He knew the backstory of people that he had just met. John 4, 29, the woman at the well. She was so blown away, she hightailed it back to the village and said, come see a man who told me all I ever did. So yes, Jesus knew what was happening on earth, but he also was aware of what was going on in heaven. We read in Luke twenty-two thirty-one 31, that Jesus told Peter that Satan demanded permission to destroy him. Now, where else do we see that Satan made such a demand? In Job, right? And where did that conversation take place? In heaven. So Jesus was intimately, intimately aware of what was happening both on earth and in heaven. Now, since I broached the topic of omniscience, it brings up a very fair and, frankly, astute question. If Jesus knows everything, then why does it say in Luke 2.52 that Jesus had to increase in knowledge and wisdom? If he knows everything, why does he have to increase in it? And why does he, why does he tell us in Mark 13.32 that he doesn't know the day or the hour of his second coming? Omniscience means Knowledge of everything, all things, fair questions. The answer is explained well in the book Systematic Theology by um, a theologian named Wayne Grudem. He said, Jesus learned things and had limited knowledge with respect to his human nature, but was always omniscient with respect to his divine nature. And therefore, he was able to, at any time, quote-unquote, call to mind whatever information would be needed for his ministry. So while in human form the son was still omniscient, his utilization of his omniscience was based on the situation. So Jesus was glorified even during his missionary years. Jesus' humiliation during his crucifixion. Jesus' state of humiliation was bookended by the two most vulnerable positions that a human body could ever encounter. One, he was an embryo. And two, it ended with him spread out on a cross. Now, do you ever have a real bad stomach ache or get hit in the stomach? What's our, our inclination is to ball up, right? When people are assaulted, usually we assume the fetal position. Even if physically it's not going to help us, there's, there's, there's a psychological comfort in being able to do that. What's the opposite of the fetal position? Not having even the, the psychological benefit of being able to, to curl up 
was an added torturous feature of the cross. Crucifixion was a form of Roman capital punishment that not every person who, that was sentenced to death received. Now, the Romans crucified a lot of people, but not everybody got that particular death penalty. That was reserved for people that were considered enemies of the state. And not only was it intended to be painful, which it most certainly was, it was so painful that the, root, the word crucifixion gives root to the root of the word excruciating, which means out of crucifying. But it was also intended to be the most humiliating and undignified form of capital punishment. One, the person was spread out, like we talked about, and Despite artistic renderings like paintings and, and drawings and sculptures of the person wearing a loincloth or a gown, being naked was a part of the standard operating procedure for crucifixion. The person was, was stripped naked on purpose. So despite the pictures of, that show otherwise, Jesus must have been naked when he was on the cross. Matthew 27, 35 says the soldiers, when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. It's doubtful that the clothing they gambled for of Jesus included everything but his loincloth. And it's doubtful that if they were going to skip a part of the crucifixion process for anybody, which they weren't, but if they were going to skip it for anybody, it certainly wouldn't have been Jesus. The purpose of the crucifixion was to especially agonize the criminal, but also send a message to anybody who would even think of doing what the person being crucified did to find themselves in that position. In Jesus' case, the crucifixion was meant to punish him physically, emotionally, and mentally, and to send a graphic message to his disciples, because the Roman um, government was still very concerned with them. So demonstration of Jesus' deity during this crucifixion. In Exodus 12, part of the instructions that God gave Moses in preparation for Passover was that the animal being sacrificed was not to have any broken bones. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus would be the sacrificial lamb to atone for our sins. Much like it was standard operating procedure for the person to be stripped naked who was being crucified, breaking the, the, the legs was just a part of the process. It was just how it was done. Any soldier worth his salt that was overseeing the crucifix crucifixion would know you got to break the legs at some point. But not one of Jesus' bones was broken during his crucifixion. That was just utterly unheard of. And um, the apostle John recognized this and made the connection to Scripture. He wrote in John 19.36, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. His bones weren't broken to fulfill the prophecy and to serve as proof that he is indeed the Messiah, the one who was referred to in the Old Testament. There's two more distinct ways in which Jesus was glorified during the crucifixion. One was the way that he died. The crucifixion was designed to be a long, drawn-out process, not a, not a quick hitter because the Romans wanted people to see for a long time, this is what's going to happen if you go against us. So normally, from the time that a person was hung on a cross and when they died, could be days. Jesus died in, within three hours. That was to demonstrate that he wasn't overcome by death. He gave himself over to death. Once again, Jesus was making a statement, I'm in control here. The other way that he was glorified was in the way that he was buried. 
Standard operating procedure, again, was once the body died on the cross, they would remove the body and unceremoniously throw it outside, in, outside of Jerusalem into an area called Gehenna, which was a, a smoldering, smelly dump. Well, Jesus' body didn't get thrown into Gehenna. He received a proper burial. In fact, he was buried in the tomb of a rich man. So the entirety of Jesus' life was in humiliation. But being God throughout, he was also rightly glorified. So next part of the sentence. Jesus Christ humbled himself to serve as mediator. Hebrews 9.15 reads, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. A mediator is a person that intervenes between two parties that are at odds with the agenda of bringing reconciliation. The word mediator doesn't exist in the Old Testament, but we know based on the definition, Moses was clearly a mediator between God and the Israelites. As a matter of fact, we see it a little bit in Hebrews 19.15, where it mentions first covenant. It's referring to the promised eternal inheritance that God intends for his children that had not yet been fulfilled. So in other words, sacraments like animal sacrifices were performed to foreshadow what was to come, namely Jesus Christ. So God used Moses as a mediator to inform the people of God's promise and to institute the sacraments like animal sacrifice to foreshadow the fulfillment of, those, of the meaning of those sacraments. The new covenant mentioned in verse 15 is the fulfillment of the promise, the actual them coming to fruition. Jesus' role as mediator guarantees that the covenant promises are fulfilled. So Moses' role as mediator was to communicate the promise. Jesus' role was to fulfill the promise. So Jesus humbled himself in order to serve as our mediator to make it possible for us to spend eternity with the Father. All right, next part. In obedience to his Father's saving purposes, several verses present the truth that Jesus came in obedience to the Father to serve him. John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus humbled himself in obedience to God to save us. We're finally at the next sentence. As the second Adam, but we're not going to get far in it because we're going to stop right there. This is really important. It's important to the Lord through Paul that we understand that Jesus was the second Adam. Now, Paul mentions it several times in, in several of his letters. For instance, in Romans 5.14, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 1 Corinthians 15.45, Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So Adam and Jesus are similar in the sense that they did not come into existence by the seed of a man. They both came directly from God. So here's an interesting thought. Just a thought. I could be wrong, and if I'm right, it makes no difference. But just a thought. I wouldn't be surprised if the, the adult Jesus looked exactly like Adam. They came through the same way, the second Adam, 
People are looking at me like, so? All right, so I'll keep going. All right, so <laughs> we don't know what Adam and Jesus look like, but we do know why it was important for Jesus to be the second Adam. It was for our salvation. God created Adam innocent and righteous without stain or corruption, and he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Had Adam and Eve not sinned, they would have remained innocent and righteous, and therefore, with us being the offspring of Eve, we would have inherited that same stainless nature instead of the one that we, we got because of the fall. So as, as the sin problem was introduced to the world by the first direct descendant of God, God made the only solution to that problem to be another man directly descended from him. So Romans, um, Romans 5, 17 through 18. For if because of one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Jesus was, and he had to be, the second Adam. Next part. His sinless life of wholehearted obedience to God's law. We've all taken surveys, maybe to rate the quality of a product or a service, and we had to rate it like on a scale from zero to 10, or excellent to down to very poor. And if you've ever started a, a presentation of the gospel with someone who doesn't know the Lord with, if you die today, why would you go to heaven? You probably found that they believe God has a scale of righteousness too, just like you know, J.C. Penney's or something, because they'll admit that they're not perfect, but they're, they're still good enough to get to heaven. They'll say, I'm not a 10, I'm not excellent, but I'm way better than a zero, and I'm, I'm way better than very, very poor. All right, well, let's just entertain this. If we were going to say that God did have a scale of righteousness, there would only be two options on it. Yes, meaning by perfectly obeying his commands, the person is righteous and saved, or no, meaning disobedient, thus unrighteous, and subject to the curse of death. There is no in-between. That's all there is. Adam was given one, one command, and it was black or white whether he was going to follow this. He either was going to perfectly obey it by not eating of the, the tree of the fruit of knowledge, I mean the fruit of the tree of knowledge, or he was going to disobey God and eat it, and we know what he did. So in order to save us, the second Adam needed to perfectly fulfill the one act of righteousness in order to remove the curse brought on by the first Adam's act of unrighteousness. So let's not be underwhelmed by the fact that Jesus only had to, had to fulfill one act, that small number one act, because that one act entailed obeying every single one of God's commands and word, thought, and deed for 33 years. 33 years. We're hard-pressed to go 33 seconds without sinning somehow. So, <laughs> Jesus was sinless while feeling everything that we feel and facing every temptation that we face. That's why he's an acceptable mediator. When Jesus was tempted by Satan, it wasn't so that God could see whether or not he was going to pass the test. God doesn't have any questions or doubts. It was for us. It was to demonstrate his qualifications or his credentials, if you will, to serve as our high priest by passing the test that Adam failed and also by being tempted as we're tempted yet remaining faithful because we aren't faithful. 
To this point, Hebrews 14.5 reads, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was the sinless person that perfectly obeyed God's law. Next part. Obtain the gift of perfect righteousness and eternal life. It seems that we've said this a whole lot through this series, but there's only two possible ways to obtain eternal life. One is to obey the law completely without failure. And what we've said over and over is that's an impossibility. We can't do it. That's why Galatians 3.10 says anybody that tries to obtain life by, by, by adhering to the law is already done. They're already under the curse because we were born already missing the mark. Jesus was the only human that perfectly obeyed every word of the law, which brings us to the only other way of obtaining eternal life, and that's by switching places with Jesus, who by his obedience to the law became righteousness for us. And we're told so in verses like um, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Without the sacrifice of Christ, our response on a righteousness scale is emphatically no. But through Jesus Christ, that no, we are are unrighteous in God's eyes, is turned to a yes. So what's amazing is that through Christ, God sees us exactly as he sees him. that's, That's amazing. Last part of the sentence, for all of God's elect. All right, this is a very powerful stated position regarding one of the most controversial and divisive doctrines of the Christian faith. The argument of does God choose us or do we choose God? Now, I got to make sure I stick with my notes on this one. So every denomination believes one or the other. They, they may not necessarily state it in their statement of faith, but we can usually detect their position by their teaching and by their, their preaching. But because of the sensitivity of it, sometimes their position isn't exactly like walk through the front door, if you will. And I know for a fact there are people here tonight that are on either side of this debate. And um, so I spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out how I was going to go about this, because I had a lot of options. I could have just tacked this last part onto the last sentence, mentioned a couple verses, and gotten out of there. Or I can do what I'm going to do, and that's just basically share with you how I got to where I stand on this position, and God will work in your heart as, as he will. Um, I'm not going to try to change anyone's mind, but you know, just, you know, I figure I'm among friends. So now, to, to, to set the table for anybody, quiet, Bucky. <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> Everybody but Bucky. <laughs> All right. So to set the table for anybody that's unfamiliar with the theological systems relative to salvation, there's, there's two general perspectives. One is commonly referred to as Calvinism. And that's named after John Calvin, a French theologian who lived between 1509 and 1564. And the other one is called Arminianism, which is named after Jacobus Arminius. He's a Dutch theologian who lived between 1560 and 1609. 
Calvin's doctrine is based on the belief that every aspect of humanity is corrupted by sin. In other words, we are, we are totally depraved, and therefore there's no way that we would come to God by our own accord. So he elects us. The Arminianism doctrine is based on the belief that every aspect of humanity is tainted by sin, but not to the extent that human beings cannot select God ourselves. So in other words, we are partially depraved and have the ability to choose God if we want to. So Calvinism basically says we're messed up. We're so messed up that there's no way that we would or we could come to God. And Arminianism says, yeah, we're messed up, but not so messed up that we couldn't make the decision to, to submit to the Lord. Does that make sense? Okay, so now granted, these might be overly simplified definitions or examples of them, but it, it, it speaks to the heart of both of them. Now, I grew up and I developed for most of my Christian life in churches that followed the, an Arminianism doctrine. Um, but years ago, I arrived at a different conclusion. And it wasn't because of a sermon that I heard preached, even though I heard a lot of them. It wasn't because somebody said something to me, and you know, I've heard a lot, a lot of people talk to me about it. It wasn't because of anything that I read. And I, I studied, I wanted to understand this. But the more that I read, the more I was convinced that Arminianism was the correct doctrine. However, the more I started studying the Bible and really digging into what does it mean, what does God's sovereignty mean, my heart started shifting a little bit. Sovereignty means supreme power or authority. And we're familiar with that word. We, we hear that word described to describe the extent of, of power that countries and people have. But I think we all understand that there's a difference between horizontal sovereignty and um, sovereignty between, within mankind and vertical sovereignty, which is God's sovereignty over creation. Only God has supreme authority because just as he's 100% holy, 100% righteous, 100% just and merciful and love and all those things, he's 100% sovereign. Sovereign is who God is. It's not just what he does, it's who he is. So when I started to grasp that, verses like Ephesians 1, 3 to 5 took on a clearer meaning to me. It says, praise be to, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us and him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So if God were to allow us to make the decision whether to accept him or not, Two implications I just want to present tonight. One is he's essentially stepping off the throne and allowing us to sit on it in regards to our salvation. Now, what a lot of people will say, coming from an Arminianism background, I, I know the argument. They'll say, no, 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 no. He's, he's, he's not doing that. He's exercising his sovereignty and giving us the freedom to choose. It's just hard for me to believe that he would turn over his sovereignty, which is who he is and what he does perfectly, to inherently fallible and, and flawed people so that we can make the most important decision, not of our life, of our eternity. So 
think of some of the decisions that we make, poor decisions that we make out of our selfishness about things that are significant, just, just incomparably less important than our, our, our eternity. It's just kind of hard to believe that we'd get this one right. Um, the next implication is, I think he would be transgressing his own word. Ephesians 2, 8-9 reads, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If the choice was ours, if the choice was ours, it's our own doing. It's our decision would be based on our reasoning and our intellect. So we're able to pat ourselves on the back. We can credit ourselves in saying we were able to figure out what the rest of the unbelieving world didn't. You know, some of my brothers and sisters in Christ that I hold in the highest regard believe that we have the authority to, to choose. And, um, you know, they bring up the unfairness of God creating people that he knows is going to go to hell, that basically he created to go to hell. And, you know, I understand that. You know, that was how I felt before, and that was one of my arguments against Calvinism. But to this, I don't know anything except what the Lord tells us in Romans 9, 13, 16. And quite frankly, this was a verse that I didn't clearly understand until I started to understand more of God's sovereignty. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Meaning, is God unfair? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, which means our intellect, our reasoning, our abilities, our works, but on God who has mercy. Granted, there are some people that advocate Arminianism that are a lot smarter than I am. And they're very familiar with these very verses that I read, but they interpret them differently. And I, I don't debate with people if they feel differently. That, that's fine. I can relate to them because I felt the other, other way as well. But what matters most is we've come to accept God's act of mercy, regardless of our disagreement with how we got there. But our church believes that God elects us. First part of the next sentence, and his substitutionary death on behalf of his people. This statement is based on verses like Isaiah 53, 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, we have, we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus served as our substitute and suffered our death so that we could have life. Next part. Christ offered himself by the Spirit as a perfect sacrifice. The purpose of animal sacrifices in the Old Testament was to temporarily cover sin. They didn't atone for sin. They didn't, or, or, you know, completely remove them. They just served as a promissory note of, in foreshadowing the sacrifice that Jesus was going to make. God ordered that the sacrificial animal be without blemish. 
And yes, it was to ensure that the Israelites gave them their best, which he desired and deserved, but it also symbolized the perfect life that Jesus sacrificed on our behalf. Hebrews 9, 13 through 14 reads, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So Jesus was the sacrificial lamb, perfect and accepted by God, so that we too would be purified, perfect and accepted by God. Next part, which satisfied the demands of God's law by paying the full penalty for their sins. This part of the sentence is based on the completed work of Jesus' humiliation. When Jesus said, it is finished, in John 19.30, he isn't saying that his life in physical form is finished, even though that was somewhat the case. More so, he was proclaiming that his mission to save those who were given to him has been successfully accomplished. And we see this in Hebrews 1.3 where it says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So it is finished means that making purifications for sins, like I just read, he's removed sin from us as far as the east is from the west. It's all done. Now we can't add something that's, to something that's completed without messing it up. So... So despite what some denominations like Roman Catholicism believe, no additional works can be done to earn salvation. Believing otherwise simply makes a mockery of Jesus' sacrifice. Why did he go through all that if there was another way? Jesus' humiliation alone paid the price for our redemption in full. It is finished. Last sentence, first part. On the cross, Christ bore our sins, took our punishment. It's just like I read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, but it needs to be read again here. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus switched places with us by enduring the brutality of dying on a cross to take the punishment that was due us. Propitiated God's wrath against us. Propitiation means sacrifice of atonement. As enemies of God, we were naturally subjected to his wrath. Now, we're used to wrath being like an outburst of rage or, or anger. But that's not God's wrath at all. God's wrath is, is a holy, just revulsion against what is contrary to and opposes his holy nature and will. Now, although God's wrath is not this ballistic, violent fit of rage, it's nothing that anybody should take comfort in. Because the consequence of God's wrath is to be crushed. Now, to be crushed by anything is not good. But to be crushed by God is beyond horrific. Isaiah 53.10 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. This means that God was willing to sacrifice Jesus, his beloved son, to save us. He was willing to crush him so that he wouldn't have to crush us. Jesus was willing to be crushed so that we wouldn't be crushed. So Jesus paying our ransom offset what would have been our penalty to pay forever. Vindicated God's righteousness. Romans 3, 25, 26 tells us that Jesus' sacrifice satisfies both God's righteousness and his justice while simultaneously displaying his mercy. God put forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because, because of God's righteousness and justice, he, he must penalize all sin. But in his great mercy to believers, he expressed his wrath against our sin onto Jesus while he was on the cross. Now, just a, as a quick aside, an interesting statement in that verse where it says, in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It means that sins committed by people who were faithful that died before um, Jesus' sacrifice was, were atoned for by his death. In other words, God didn't just write off the sins of people like Moses and David and Elijah and New Testament saints that probably died before Jesus was crucified, like Simeon. God predestined Jesus to be their savior too. So he, 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 he welled up his punishment for their sins, and poured it out on Jesus as well. And when Jesus was on the cross, it wasn't as though he was there just kind of dying for the sins of mankind in general. Remember, he was still God, very aware of everything. So he died for the sin that we committed in sixth grade, the first time we told our parents no, for each and every person. Same thing for the Old Testament saints. The Lord is letting us know in this verse, not, he doesn't want us to make any mistake about it. No sin has ever or will ever go unpunished. Either Jesus paid for it for us or people are going to have to pay for it themselves. God's righteousness is completely vindicated through Jesus humbling himself on the cross. Uh, next part. Purchased our redemption in order that we might be reconciled to God. Romans 3.24 says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Jesus' humiliation removed the enmity between God and us, changing us from enemies of God to heirs with Christ. And last part, and live with him in blessed fellowship forever. Jesus' ministry up to the cross was part of his work in sanctifying us just to sanctify us. So during that time, he taught us and he lived a lifestyle that gave us the blueprint for living a life that's pleasing to God. But sanctification isn't what saved us. It's proof that we're saved, but it's not what saved us. It was his death on the cross, the last step of the stage of humiliation that justifies us. His crucifixion is what saved us. So let's close tonight with what the Bible clearly tells us is the ultimate result of Jesus' final act of humility to justify us. And we find this in Revelation 21.3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The saving work of Jesus' humiliation brought us the blessing of fellowshipping with him now and forever. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Father, we thank you so much for humbling yourself, for coming to this world that you created and taking on what was due us. Father, we thank you for loving us that much. We thank you for blessing us with your word, Father, and teaching us your way. We thank you for loving us that much as well. 
Thank you for everybody that's here tonight. Father, work in our hearts as you will. Let this message make a difference in our lives and how we live for you. In Jesus' name we pray and we thank you. Amen.